2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. A lot of companies and organizations use a document called a Memorandum of Understanding. It's not a legal document, but it's a strong statement of mutual understanding of individual parties. It's a statement of how we're to think about things and then how we're to think about others and then how we're to conduct our business. The point of a memorandum of understanding is to communicate to all parties concerned. And Paul's instructions have practical value for believers in every age. These are the basic instructions, but they're also to serve as constant reminders the theme of this short letter is found in the section that we just read. Paul has devoted his life to Jesus, to the gospel of Jesus. It is the person of Jesus and the message of Jesus that is the central focus of Paul's writing and Paul's ministry. In Ephesus, in Corinth, in Rome... Paul has preached and taught the great themes of the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the message and the ministry of Jesus, of salvation through Jesus, and salvation by grace through Jesus Christ the Lord. But many people came to doubt that he was an authentic apostle with an authentic message. They questioned his authority and ability. A growing number of people were departing from the foundational principles Paul had carefully laid out. Part of the struggle is the fact that because of Paul's keen commitment to Christ, it's landed him in a Roman prison, awaiting a Roman execution. The theme of this book is holding on to the truth when others seem to be letting go. William MacDonald wrote, quote, this theme may be stated as, quote, individual responsibility in a time of collective failure. And it's an admonition for each and every one of us. How can we hold on? When people around us are letting go. And so in this little letter, Paul covers the mega themes of boldness in the face of aggression. 
opposition and persecution. The exhortations to Timothy have included, please, please be faithful to the truth of the gospel. Be faithful to Jesus. Don't join the swelling ranks of those who have compromised the gospel or abandoned the gospel. Timothy is tasked with taking the torch of truth and then passing it on to the future generations. He's already been instructed to preach and teach the gospel. He's already been told, please, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me. And be prepared to suffer. In the final days before Jesus' return, there are going to be false teachers spreading false teaching. There will be spiritual dropouts who twist the truth of God's word. They will come using the tools of opposition and deception, causing confusion to the body of Christ, encouraging people who are already on the fence to walk away from the truth and the practice of the truth. And since Jesus is the author of the truth and because the word of God is the receptacle of truth, God's word remains the source and the standard by which we evaluate everything. And so Paul gives him this first re reminder. Focus on what's important. Focus on the essentials. Look again at verse 14. Remind them of these things. Remind them, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers, Paul's exhortation begins with that reminder of these things. What things? The mega themes that we learned in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. The word remind is what is known as in the present imperative in the original language. The implication being tell them, remind them, and do it over and over and over again. Sometimes you might get sick of hearing it. Gino, we know that Jesus is Lord. We know that sin is the problem and that Jesus is the solution. You don't have to remind us anymore. No, I, I do. I need to remind you over and over and over again. Because over and over and over again, there are going to be people who will tell you that it's not true. The expression, charging them before the Lord, provides both the motive and the spirit behind the admonition. You're doing this with, in the presence of Jesus. You're doing this in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is here. He knows everything that we're saying. To the ruin is a strong Greek word. So he says, charging them before the Lord, he says, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearer. 
That word ruin is a strong word in the original language. And it's a word that each and every one of you, you know the meaning of that word. As soon as I say it out loud, you're going to know what it is. It's the Greek word catastrophe. You're smiling. You know that word. It's come down to you. We use it in our everyday language. In the ancient world, it meant ruin or destruction. In context, it carried the meaning of to subvert or strive. Literally, the word catastrophe means to overturn or to flip over. Have you ever been in a storm and the winds blow or the, the, the waves rage? Here is the idea. It overturns or overthrows. And the expression strive about words is, is something that we've already talked about because of earlier scriptures. Laga, makeo. It means to fight with words. This expression is unique in the Greek New Testament but it is found in its noun form in what we already learned in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul warned about the false teachers who in their pride, knowing nothing, obsess over words. And so that meaning, the meaning is word battles. It's getting into a fight, a war of words, where the collateral damage is the heart and the minds and the friendships and the relationships that we've fought so hard to have together. And so people fight about all kinds of stuff. You already know this, don't you? Maybe you've already gotten into a fight with a husband or a wife or a child, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a friend, who knew that the escalation and the war of words would result in a situation where somebody walks away from the relationship? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says that the consequences of these wars of word include envy and strife and reviling, evil suspicions, useless wrangling of men of corrupt minds who are destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And he said, from such withdraw yourself. There are people who fight and then they fight and then they fight some more. That's the consequence. That's the catastrophe. That's the ruin. This is the first of three warnings that Paul will give to Timothy to avoid useless arguments. Now, I want you to note that. Not every argument is a useless argument. Not every argument is useless in the sense that it has no value, but there are some arguments that are useless, that just keep on winding up with the same result. Pain, heartache, division. Is Paul rejecting doctrinal details? I don't think so. Is Paul rejecting the idea of an apologia, 
that means a defense of the faith? Is he rejecting the idea that there are going to be people who have disagreements and that there are going to be times when we have to faithfully represent what the Bible says about important issues? I think that that is true. Paul is condemning the strife that is generated from conversations that have no real or lasting value. He's condemning those things that generate not light, but heat, that generate not light, but darkness, that generate not clarity, but confusion. There are essentials. There are doctrinal essentials. And there are things that are non-essential. Quarreling over non-essentials can split churches and undermine ministry goals and then wound the innocent. Paul doesn't for a moment suggest we ignore false teachers or false teaching. Otherwise, we would have to forget about all of the warnings that he's already given to us about false teachers and false teaching. In 1 Timothy, Paul wrote, command certain men not to teach false doctrines. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The false teachers were forever preoccupied with myths and genealogies in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4. They fought over words and details that aren't found in the scripture or have no scriptural source. Believers who get caught up in these quarrels about words waste time and resources and many wind up ruined rather than strengthened. Again, for the person who argues that words and definitions matter, you get no quarrel from me. I believe that words matter. Definitions matter. But remember the context of the passage in which you are reading. In the first chapter, Paul pleaded with Timothy, Timothy, I want you to remember God's call on your life in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Timothy, I want you to remember the resources of grace that have been imparted to you in, in chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. I want you to understand that there's a reward that's going to be found at God's throne in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Suffering is a part of the pastor's call, Timothy. Remember, there's going to be problems. There's going to be sufferings. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be opposition. And there's a couple of ways of thinking about suffering. You can dread it and ignore it, or you can embrace it and see it as a privilege. How in the world are we to discern the difference between what really matters and what doesn't really matter? And the way that you discern the difference between what really matters and what doesn't really matter is what does this have to do about the nature and character of God? What does this have to do about the revelation of God? Does it misrepresent God? What about the person of Jesus? And what about the message of Jesus in the gospel? 
These are essential matters. These are non-negotiables. But also Paul understands that there's some things that have little value. Paul is using the language of profit and loss when he uses the term ruin. What is important and less important? What builds up and what tears down? Gossip and unfair criticism will always tear down. And there are literally hundreds of theories and thousands of speculations over non-essential matters that crowd the mind and the resources of talented and gifted men and women. I know one of the most gifted thinkers and writers of our generation We've devoted his life to trying to discover the identity of the Antichrist. What a waste of time. It isn't your job to know who the Antichrist is. You're not looking for the Antichrist. You're looking for Jesus Christ. William Barclay offers this excellent insight into what happens when some people overhear spirited discussions among people who disagree, quote, discussion can be stimulating and invigorating for those who approach, for, the, for those whose approach to the Christian faith is intellectual, for those who have a background of knowledge and of culture, for those who are characteristically students, for those who have a real knowledge of or interest in theology. But it sometimes happens that a simple-minded person finds himself in a group which is tossing heresies about and proposing or propounding unanswerable questions. And it may well be that the faith of that simple person so far from being helped is upset. And it may well happen that clever, subtle, speculative, destructive, intellectually reckless discussion may have the effect of demolishing and not building up the faith of some single person who happens to become involved in it. As in all things, there's a time to discuss and there's a time to be silent, unquote. There is a time to talk about things. And there's a time to refrain from talking about things. Do you really need to know how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? In this second reminder, he's going to tell Timothy something that every pastor must take seriously. Every Bible student must take seriously. He says in verse 15, be diligent to study, or another translation says study. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy is a pastor. As a pastor, he has to study. The pastor is tasked with the job of pointing people to Jesus. I want to remind you of something and remind the pastors. The pastor helps administer the ordinances of the church, like baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. The pastor 
is supposed to be a man of prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. The pastor prays, the pastor guides, the pastor guards, the pastor leads. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, you see that in verse 1 and verse 6, the pastor watches over souls, both his own soul and the soul of others, 1 Timothy 4, 6. The pastor leads and feeds the flock. The pastor is an example to all in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. The pastor preaches 2 Timothy 4, 2. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. The pastor faithfully studies the Bible. Here it's called the word of truth in verse 15. In its entirety, Every single word in this powerful verse deserves careful exposition. But in the interest of time, I'm going to only offer you some very basic comments for you to think about. Paul reminds Timothy to present himself for God's approval. The pastor or Bible teacher doesn't present himself to the congregation for their approval, but to God for his approval. Let me be blunt, as blunt as I dare be. The pastor or Bible teacher who doesn't get right with God in his heart in his personal life has no place for teaching the Bible and teaches it at his own risk. Some people might be wondering, why in the world does it take you so long to prepare a message? Because the preparation isn't simply focused on the message, it's focused on me. If I'm wrong with God on Monday morning and Monday evening and Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening, it makes study not only painful but almost fruitless. It was R.A. Torrey who said, the first task of biblical interpretation and exposition is you have to get right with God. How in good conscience do we dare teach or preach God's word and leave our own heart neglected? It may be the most important part of preparation. It has to take place in the secret recesses of our heart because only there will you be able to discern your sin and repent of your sin and abandon sin. And so the preacher's concern isn't the approval of human beings, it's the approval of God. How can we carry the powerful truths of the gospel while harboring the toxic waste of unconfessed and unrepentant sin? Only a fool would dare teach this passage and not ask the question, 
how can I secure the approval of God? How can I make sure I'm okay? Let me give you a sense of hope before you lose heart. We're all traumatized by sin. But when we're traumatized by sin, we go to the emergency room, the spiritual emergency room immediately. We go to the cross of Jesus. We go to the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. Because guess what? Your approval doesn't lie in your goodness or badness, your weakness or strength. Your approval lies in the person of Jesus. You are chosen by Jesus and adopted by Jesus and accepted in the beloved. Your approval comes through the Lord Jesus. So what else secures the approval of God? You are a workman. That means you're a diligent worker. That word worker, by the way, isn't just any worker. It's a worker who toils to the point of exhaustion. Earlier in the passage, when he uses the metaphor of athletes and farmers, athletes train to the point of exhaustion. It's one thing to watch the football game this afternoon, and it's another thing to be a part of the team and get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and do the work and do the work and do the work. Soldiers train to the point of exhaustion. Farmers get up early. They go to bed sometimes late. If you don't study your Bible to the point of exhaustion, you're probably doing it wrong. And what's the focus of our study? It's the word of truth. We rightly divide the word of truth. That's the Bible. That's this precious letter that Timothy is holding in his hand, reading from Paul. You can't secure the approval of God, pastors, by mishandling the truth. You will not receive the approval of God if you misrepresent the text. The Lord knows we're human. The Lord knows we're capable of making mistakes. The Lord knows how easily we can be led astray. The Lord knows how easy it is to make a false statement. The Lord knows how easy it is to draw a false conclusion. The treasures in the Bible are for those who are willing to dig it up. And so every Bible teacher should understand the risks. That English word approved is based on the root word, prove. The adjective is dokamos. It's related to the verb, dokamizo. It means to test. It means to try. It means to prove. In this context, as an illustration, it was used to describe the purity of metals. In this sense, it's used to provide the purity, not of the passage that you're teaching, but the person who's teaching it. And that's why it's so important to have a right heart, to have a cleansed heart, to have a tried heart. God can approve only those who approve themselves. 
in the very real tests of life. If you are saying, I can't teach this text, then don't. You can't rightly divide the word of truth. You can't pour into it a meaning that it never had. You cannot draw from it a meaning that it doesn't contain. Let me put it to you plainly. If you forget everything else that I'm saying, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. There are only two ways that you can study the Bible. You can study it with your mind made up, or you can study it in such a way that you allow it to make up your mind. The expression rightly dividing the, 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 the truth translates the Greek word ortho, mounta. It's a compound word, ortho. You, you know that. Mounta, you even know that. It means to cut straight. It means to cut an exact line. In the ancient world, this word was used to describe digging a trench or a furrow through a field. It meant laying out a straight road for the Romans. In the Septuagint, it was used in the sense of direction, to make a straight path, to make something plain. One lexicon translates this, teach straight. The stone or the tent maker when you were cutting the stone or you're cutting the wood or you're cutting whatever it is that you're cutting, you need to cut it straight. You need to be precise. Precision and accuracy are required for the Bible teacher. And so the person who plays games with the text is playing a dangerous game. Several scholars take this metaphor to mean that the minister makes straight paths for the people to tread. Vincent writes, quote, the thought is that the minister of the gospel is to present the truth rightly, not abridging it, not handling it like a charlatan, not making it full of wordy strife. E.K. Simpson prefers cut a road, and then adds, it enjoins on every teacher of the word straightforward exegesis. That means lay out clearly a path that any person can walk on. Exegesis, by the way, is the art and science of, of understanding the text. What are the most basic and fundamental skills? I don't have time to get into it all, but let me just give you a couple. Number one, get right with God. Number two, be determined to find out what God wants to teach, not what you want him to teach. Number three, get the most accurate text. Number four, look for the plain or the literal meaning. Remember what I said to you. The passage can't mean what it never meant. The Bible contains figures of speech. It contains metaphors. It contains hyperbole. It contains allegory. If you're unfamiliar with the parts of speech, then you need to become familiar with them. What was the author's intent? 
What are the meaning of the words? And by that, I mean lexical meaning and etymology or, or etymology in the sense of what did the word really mean to the person who heard it for the first time? Understand the grammar and the, and the structure. Understand the historical setting. Understand the geographical setting. Understand the cultural context. Interpret the individual passages in light of related passages. Interpret poetry as poetry. Prose as po prose. History as history. And then interpret what belongs to the Jew as belonging to the Jew, to the Christian as belonging to the Christian, and to the Gentile as belonging to the Gentile. And then find the most exact and literal meaning of the text and then interpret the words in relationship to the entire Bible and remember that the Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of the Bible. And you're thinking, what, what are you talking about? We study God's word for the purpose of discovering God's will. We compare scripture with scripture. William Grinnell said, false doctrines, false, like false witnesses, won't agree among themselves. And after me saying all of this, I'm hoping you're going, that sounds like a lot of work. It is. Remember what I said to you earlier? There's a difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible. I want you to read it. I really do. And I want you to study it. And for many of you, I want you to teach it. But in order to teach you, you have to teach it right. And what does the word of truth include? It's everything in scripture. John 17, 17. My word is truth, Jesus said. The word of truth is the gospel message clearly in Ephesians 1, 13 and Colossians 1, 5. I'm going to suggest to you that the word of truth is everything that's contained from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to the last sentence in the book of Revelation. The truth, the word of truth is always colored by the teaching and the preaching of Jesus. And if you don't see Jesus in the passage... If you don't read Jesus on the page, look again. Look harder. Beg the Lord. Say, Lord, please show me yourself in the text that I'm reading. And so he says, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like, literally in the text it says, gangrene, cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of many. The Bible teacher's preoccupation is with the word of truth. We forsake profane and idle babbling. Paul uses that word kino, phoneo. Kino, it means empty. Phoneo, it means sound. It occurs only here and in 1 Timothy 
Literally, the word means empty, noise. The New American Standard scholars decided to use the term empty, chatter. In both letters by Paul, it's preceded by the Greek word beblos, profane. Profane, empty, chatter. Some scholars combine the adjective and the noun and they come up with a single phrase. This is godless chatter, godless talk. It's supposed to be contrasted with godly talk. Godless talk increases the opportunity for godlessness. So is Paul saying, oh, we can't have small talk, we can't make marketplace conversation, we can't say, oh, what about those Broncos? That's not what's being condemned. It's not suggesting that you can't talk about baseball or football or whatever. Paul is condemning the disputes and arguments of the critics and the heretics, the ones who are embracing destructive heresies that don't lead to edification, but rather lead to ungodliness. And so let me be very clear, as clear as I can possibly be. False doctrine isn't harmless. It's harmful. It's always harmful. Heresy can't save you ever. It won't sanctify you ever. It won't build you up ever. This is Paul's second warning. Remember verse 14. And remember verse 23 later. Learning has value. A constant focus on false doctrine and unhealthy trivialities will begin to take a toll on your heart and on your mind. This is why the Bible constantly enjoins the saints. I don't want you to just simply know what's right. I want you to do what's right. I want you to take the time out of your busy schedule and say something kind to anyone. Do something beautiful for someone. Say something encouraging. The false teacher or the person who champions the trivial will never make godly progress. So what's the message that spreads like cancer? In this particular instance, he's talking about the resurrection has already passed. That means it's already taken place. So the word Paul uses to describe this deadly disease, it's a deadly disease that results in death in verse 17. And again, like I said, the word cancer is, the, is really the word gangrene. When living tissue is denied circulation, it begins to die. Limbs were sometimes sacrificed in order to save the host. If a person had a profound injury to their hand or their arm or their leg in the ancient world, sometimes they would cut it off. And so Paul understands that false teaching attacks and then consumes its host. And he gives the example of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Why does Paul name them by name? 
because he needed for the people to understand that these were dangerous teachers of a false doctrine. They're both mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, along with Alexander the coppersmith. Paul handed these men over to Satan. What does that mean? He put them out of the church. What does that mean? He reduced their influence in order to protect the people of God. What does that mean? It means that the pastor's job is in part to create an environment of blessing and encouragement. Whoever they are that have strayed, wandered from the truth. And so he gives the specific example. The resurrection is already passed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Paul had already written, we affirm the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead and that it's essential to biblical gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, by his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and he will raise us up also. So when a person says something that isn't true, that undermines the faith, it has to be confronted. And again, what were they denying? It would appear that they were denying the reality of the believer's bodily resurrection. Some scholars have suggested they may have not have denied Christ's resurrection, but they may have just simply denied the fact that believers would one day rise from the dead. Whatever is happening... Paul describes the consequences of their false teaching. teaching. They overthrow the faith of some. And I'm thinking this is a reference not to genuine or saving faith. Because genuine and saving faith is going to persevere. People say, well, you know what? I used to believe what the Bible says. And I used to believe about God. And I used to believe the gospel. I used to believe all of that stuff. But I don't believe it anymore. According to the Bible, they never really believed at all. Because genuine faith, saving faith, the kind of faith where you go, no, I really believe Jesus. I believe that my loving Savior came into this world to die a most painful death for me so that I could live forever. And the Holy Spirit came into my heart. He cleansed me and washed me and made me new. He changed me. Someone once said, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that God can turn water into wine? And the person said, I don't know, but I know that it can turn beer into furniture. What do you mean? My husband used to take the paycheck and drink it every night, but now he saves the money and he's bought furniture for our house. The false teacher that denies something vital and essential to biblical Christianity puts the whole body at risk. And without a bodily resurrection, there is no Christianity. So quickly, I just want to remind you who aren't pastors, read your Bible. But read it in such a way that you want to understand the message. Read the Bible with a simple childlike faith and humility. Believe what God reveals. Reason must bow before revelation. Read the word of God with a spirit of self-application. 
apply what God says to yourself. Obey his will. Read the scriptures every day. We quickly lose the nourishment and strength from yesterday's bread. We have to feed our souls daily on the manna that's been given to us from heaven. Read the whole Bible. Read it in an orderly way. People say, well, do whatever. I'm not going to say that. Start at the beginning. It's okay. Read the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Read it honestly. Read it fairly. Read it in its context. And remember, the whole book is about Jesus. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you say that you have life, but they are those which testify of me. I didn't see Jesus. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. He's there. Read it again. And guess what? You'll eventually see him on every single page and every single book. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would awaken in every single heart an unquenchable thirst, not just to know the Bible, study the Bible, believe the Bible, but to believe it for a good reason. Because this is what changes people's lives. This is what changes people's hearts. This is what changes people's future. And Lord, again, I pray for every pastor. I pray for every Bible teacher. Everyone who's tasked with opening this book, saying what it says. Lord, I pray that you'll give them grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that you'd help me, that if I've misrepresented the text in any way, that you'd reveal it to me. And so again, Lord, we thank you, we praise you for this Bible. In Jesus' name, amen.